Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Engendered, the show that features stories that explore the systems, practices, and policies that enable gender-based violence and oppression and the solutions to end it. We use gender as a lens to understand power and oppression, teach feminism, and decolonize hearts and minds one story at a time. Engendered is sponsored by Can Do It, spelled K-A-N-D-U-I-T, and I'm your host, Terry Yuan. Welcome, Michael. Hi, how are you? Thanks for joining us on this episode of Reflections, where we look back on episodes 72 and 73, our conversation with C.V. Harkwell on her book, Feminism, A Key Idea in Business and Society, episode 74 with Vanessa Dawson of The Veneta Project on investing in female tech founders, and episodes 75 and 76 with Susan Basterfield and Gina Stevens-Remby of Inspiral and its feminist business ecosystem. So let's start with episode 72 and 73, C.V. Harquill. I believe this is your first two-parter episode where you have uh, one person that there's so much there to, to look into. And uh, there were a lot of points that I, I, I wanted to talk about. But in general, I found it very uh, unique, I guess I would say, to be able to talk about both business and feminism in a book because... As you discussed, there's sometimes in many ways opposites where business in general is, is seen by the average person as something that deals a lot with capitalism and uh, it usually deals with hierarchies as capitalism does. So feminism sort of uh, is, is the opposite of that. Well, I would modify what you said a little bit because capitalism I don't think in and of itself is anti-feminist. It certainly cares about shareholders and making profit. But I do think that feminism adds a layer of understanding in how we define the key questions that CV posed around what should a business do? How should it organize itself? And so it can define the people that it cares about beyond just the shareholders and owners, it can define the stakeholders as people who are part of their staff, their employees, the customers, the community in which they operate, and the larger society. You mentioned that this book may not have been able to be uh, published in the past. So I'm assuming that most people have this idea that business is there to uh, promote profit above all else and maintain a hierarchy. So that, that's what I mean. I mean, some aspects of, uh, I, like, I love the way that CV defines, redefines uh, business. So I do appreciate that. But yes, you're right. And did you feel that any of the ideas that she offered in her book, uh, in our discussion, were things that were new to you? Or, or were they ideas that you have been grappling and thinking about on your own already as a manager? I believe that she in many ways allows us to talk about things by defining things and putting um new words into into the 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 vocabulary of what we're talking about such as interdependence that's something that 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 she coined herself that um allowed us to speak on something that i previously didn't even think that there could be a word for i didn't even think of hey there's something here that it's like those German words where uh, there are certain words in, in, in the German language that uh, describe something. But we over here in the United States in the English language, it's, it's, we don't have a word for those. But 
I hope that with language evolving, we are able to, to give name. And once we can identify these things, we can then talk about them. But to answer your question, I have grappled with a lot of these thoughts before. It's just, it, she just clarified things. When I said that she was naming things for me that I had thought about as well, I think one of those things that I really liked was this concept that diversity and inclusion, you know, is now like a sort of well acknowledged and well-developed field within human resources, diversity, equity, and inclusion. And it's more an afterthought. And there are people who are experts to try to help companies grapple with the problem of how they can be more equitable and attract more diverse talent, right? But the, the way that CV defines feminism in business, if you have feminist business values centering the way you organize your company, then by definition, diversity, equity, and inclusion will be part of it. It'll be part of how you attract talent, how you retain talent, how you create products and services for your customers, and how they all intersect. She mentioned um, about how that there are certain examples of, of, of that when people ask, well, you know, this is a, a new idea. Like, what, what, what kind of solutions do you have? And then she did mention, she mentioned, I believe, three companies that had these values in them. And I, I, I did appreciate that because those examples made it more clear for me to, to, to understand and see what, how can those values be uh, implemented. And basically, if you're applying it to another company that already exists, I, many people might think that it, it may hurt their bottom line because ultimately their profit is what they care about. But in a lot of ways, by reframing this, you can consider what other benefits you are focusing on and how you can address them, right? Thinking about uh, the ability to address not just the profit, but the people that are working for your company and making sure that they are served as well. Yeah, and as an employer, one of the terms that she uses is having this perspective of whole humanness, recognizing that all people in the staff um, your employees, you know, they're human and they have another life. And in order to be able to contribute and get value from the work that they're doing, their other aspects of their life, their other identities as parents or as caregivers or in relationship to other people and the world, that they matter to, that the organization should have policies and practices that give space for their employees to live their lives outside of work and to have balance. I think that if a company takes uh, into account these values, it may help them in the long run because I'm, I'm, I'm assuming if you treat an employee just as a cog in a machine and the employee may ultimately get burnt out if you're not paying attention to these things. And that would also affect their bottom line because it takes a long time to train an employee to make sure that they're up to speed with everything. And if, if you're constantly dealing with high turnover rates, that that will ultimately hurt your bottom line. And I think that this uh, way of thinking could possibly help with that. Retaining staff would ultimately help them be more productive in the long run. Yeah, and I think this speaks to one of the values and the ways in which she expands the definition of feminism, where 
there's not just equality and you know justice and there's this generativity concept where you're building products and services that are going to last and be valuable for generations down the line but also this concept of human flourishing where everybody flourishes and so to the extent that what you said that people can have time and space and the mental health and capacity to actually do work that's valuable, enjoy that work, be rewarded for that work, and then have a life outside of it to enjoy the fruits of their labor. I think that's really important because it it really supports the idea of generativity, that they can regenerate and rejuvenate themselves through these relationships and being valued. Right. I mean, I'm not very educated in, in when it comes to uh, the way other countries work. But what I do know is that other countries in Europe, uh, I believe they have more uh, time for vacation. And I think uh, that the difference originally comes from the Industrial Revolution in the United States, where uh, people were treated, employees were treated more as part of a machine. And um, I, it, it's, it's a different way of thinking. And, and so in many ways, the uh, other countries are more progressive than the United States. Yeah, and it's not just having more vacation time, time off, but also having other benefits, having a social safety net. So for example, if you're pregnant, you have guaranteed not just maternity leave and paternity leave, but your job is guaranteed. Um, the time that you have is paid when you're t- taking time off to care for your baby. You have, you have universal health care. And having the ability to take care of yourself and the value that everybody, that health care is not a privilege, it's a right, creates a culture where people are valued. And then that's also the culture. Like even if you have a lot of vacation in the U.S., people don't always take it. Or if they do take the vacation, they're always working. They're always on. So I think these are very key differences in terms of culture and values that play out in Europe and other quote-unquote progressive countries and the U.S. Um, And it really takes a culture shift and a mindset shift to recognize that what's happening now isn't working, that the 1% is basically extracting all the value and the profit from the rest of us. And what are we going to do about it? Right. It seems that a lot of the, this type of culture here in the United States is more short-term thinking. You're thinking, basically focusing on the long-term goals of making sure that there's satisfaction. They're they're thinking of short-term profits, what it is that they're they're giving to the employees right now and how is it affecting them just right now. I like the analogy that she had with the shoe, that it is important for everybody to be treated differently. So equality uh, and feminism fits with uh, each person getting what it is that they need in order to address what their needs are, right? Uh, in order for the person to be as productive as possible, you would you should be able to accommodate them for what it is that they need. So I, th- I like that thought. So the idea is that it's not that everyone should have a shoe, it's that everyone deserves a shoe and that everyone deserves a shoe that fits them to put in another way so that they could thrive. Right, exactly. So then, um, so, so because people are thinking short term, it, it, it's a system, like she mentioned, that serves, like you just mentioned, the 1%. Um, and also, she, she illustrated that when she said that the system is not broken. The system works perfectly fine for that 1%, for the people that are on top and in control of the system. So I, I hope that in the upcoming years that 
more and more people become aware of of how the system is is functioning against them and hopefully they won't vote against their own interests. What do you think are ways in which people can be incentivized to even think outside of the box, outside of our current capitalistic model and embrace some of these ideas and values that are feminist in the workplace. How do you think we can promote these practices to be adopted within small organizations, medium and larger publicly traded organizations? In my opinion, it comes down to just exposure and education. One of the answers that the speaker later on uh, responded to saying that a person who was interested already in activism was interested because their parents were interested in them. And in a lot of ways, uh, people who are conservative are probably conservative because their parents were conservative. And so it's this pattern that continues to exist. I think what you're saying is, how do we make them more aware of these values and how beneficial these values are? And other than education, it's really difficult. If everybody who who is aware of them, talks to other people about them. I think that's in one small way to be able to influence other people. If people are in a position of power and they have this knowledge, it's important for them to share them. So if you're a manager, it would make sense that you lead with these uh, ideals in mind. Uh, One of the things that you mentioned was land acknowledgement. And that's in one way, a way that she let other people become aware of something that they may not have been aware of before. And of course, you mentioned that this is something that happened in Canada and it doesn't happen so much over here. And we are very, the United States is very guilty of uh, taking the lands of uh, Native Americans here. So if someone is giving a conference, um, that's one small way of doing it. That'll educate people. I do understand that there are other people that we use words like grandstanding and virtue signaling. But I think when a person mentions the word virtue signaling, it's it's sort of a defense, just a defense. I think it's a silly defense because either way, if you are quote unquote virtue signaling, you're still making that, you're meeting your goal of acknowledging something that people may not have acknowledged already, whether it's real or fake. It's kind of like a, a, a person who says a racist joke. The no matter what the intention is, whether they're joking or not joking, the result is the same. It's something racist. So you're saying that if someone's accused of virtue signaling, whether or not they get the benefit of being labeled quote unquote progressive or woke, that doesn't matter because they're still, it's the impact that they're bringing out the idea into the public, into discussion and dialogue. And that benefit outweighs whether or not the individual has his or her reputation elevated. Right. I mean, we, if we take it as an insult, I think like that, that's a personal thing. It's a, it's a perception, I would say. You may or may not be offended. I, if, if you come in with a genuine feeling of wanting to learn, that, like, like CV mentioned, I think it's important to, to approach things like that just uh, coming from a place of wanting to learn. So let's turn to the next episode, episode 74 with Vanessa Dawson of the Veneta Project. So Vanessa uses the Veneta Project as an opportunity to help female tech founders to build their four capital pillars, which include building financial capital, intellectual capital, social capital, and personal capital. 
one of the things I asked Vanessa was to what extent, I guess, women have various levels of access to each of these capital pillars, uh, and also to what extent their perception of their own access to these four capital pillars may differ from the folks at Veneta who are acting as mentors. One of the questions that you asked Vanessa was, does your company consider itself feminist? I believe that um, based on how she runs the company, it's clear that it is, but she herself doesn't identify necessarily as a feminist. She does see that the values, like such as the four pillars, are represent feminism, but she doesn't market her company as such. I don't know if she thinks that the four pillars represent feminism, but they promote feminism. Which reminds me of a a recent Radiolab episode. So Radiolab actually has a series on Dolly Parton. And Dolly Parton, uh, by many, have been viewed as feminist leader. But when people at Radiolab interviewed Dolly Parton, she says that she doesn't identify as a feminist herself. She feels that like many other people, it's, it's maybe a scary word. And so for that reason, she doesn't. But all of the values that she has in her music of all inclusion, of uh, making sure that there's something for everybody is, is something that's ingrained in her music. And I think that you can compare this to her, to, to, this, to this company. So you're saying that people can be feminist without knowing it, kind of like when we were talking with Damien Mander and how he works with the Akashinga uh, Brave Ones, and yet he sort of shied away from the term feminism, even though his whole business model and his ideology and philosophy towards why he's doing the work that he's doing is basically feminist. So do you think that it's important or necessary for someone to claim that term if they're doing this work in order to destigmatize that term and to elevate these values? This is, goes back to our conversation with CV. Right. CV mentioned that there's basically, and, and I, I don't know if there's proof behind it, but that there's a conspiracy, that there's a right-wing conspiracy that is trying to add shame to the word feminism and trying to make it uh, a bad thing, right? So, yeah, so this, she said, not that is, that has been going on, so for decades. For example, the conservative radio talk show Rush Limbo is the one who popularized the term feminazi. And that's from what we know about Fox News. I mean, they are a, basically a disinformation machine. And they've been working for over five decades to stigmatize all levels of equality and um, social justice, including efforts to acknowledge that there is sex-based discrimination, to acknowledge rape culture, to acknowledge Black Lives Matter movement, you know, all of these things, they try to dismiss or deflect or to um, use their disinformation campaign um, as a way to slur these efforts in the movement. It seems that this is another left-right issue where you, one side has the facts and that's just what they are. Let's compare it to like climate change, right? Where you're thinking, well, this is just 
the facts. This is just something that we have to address based on what 90%, over 90% of scientists believe is true. And yet there's a right wing narrative saying that, no, it's not true. Or yes, now it's true, but there's nothing we could do about it. So why even bother? Um, I think it's the same kind of machine that's affecting feminism. There's these feminist values that just work. But Damien Mander and Vanessa both understand that this model is something that works and it's beneficial for everybody. But there is this right wing um, narrative that is trying to work against it just because of I don't I'm not really even sure what the reasons are other than misogyny or just making sure that the hierarchy remains the same and that the status quo remains the same. Yeah, and the status quo can only remain the same if people are complicit in maintaining the different hierarchies, including women and minorities being below white men. So there's a great documentary on Netflix called Reversing Roe, which gives a 50-year history of the ways in which the right, including the Christian right, the evangelicals, have worked with wealthy conservatives like the Koch brothers to establish and fund organizations like the Federalist Society to basically create long-term vision and strategy for how they can dismantle women's power and people of color's power, but especially with regard to in the issue of abortion in that documentary, making sure that women don't have control over their bodies legally. Right. And it kind of makes me wonder why is it that people do continue to support the, this hierarchical um, establishment? And I think part of the reason is because if they question the authority, then maybe in some way they feel like, well, if I'm questioning this, maybe the people that are below me would question me and then that'll topple the whole thing down. So maybe they feel like since they are part of that um, hierarchy, that they don't want to disturb the status quo because it'll somehow affect them in a negative way. That's just a thought. Well, I think there's also the concept of, you know, how people, even though one might not be in the same economic or social status uh, as someone who's in the 1%, you know, most 99% of us aren't, there's still this aspirational alignment where you think that one day you could be rich, and so you vote and you align yourself with interests uh, that protect um, hoarding wealth, right, like right. like the estate tax being abolished um, or eliminated, right? right and so right. no one, uh, unless you're really, really wealthy, the estate tax really won't matter to you, but people are in support of those things and like not wanting to Elizabeth Warren's wealth tax. I mean, I don't know what the cutoff is. I think it's over $20 million in, in, in assets. Then there's a certain percentage that she is, wants to tax. But if you're not, if you don't have $20 million in assets, then it doesn't matter to you. And the fact that people want to protect those who are wealthy and are against the wealth tax in order to take that money to redistribute to society, to the rest of us in social services and programs and education and healthcare, it seems really bizarre to me. It is bizarre. It's, it's even on TV, um, I'm not sure, I really should have cited this, but there was a, a, 
uh, a wealthy person that was on TV that began to cry not too long ago in public television um, when he was talking about how Elizabeth Warren was going to somehow uh, affect his taxes and take his money that he feels like he somehow earned uh, by himself, despite not understanding or maybe ignoring the fact that his wealth was only made because of the people that he employed. Um, he, the people that he basically, I would say, took advantage of and made sure that he squeezed everything that they can, that he could out of them in order to become that wealthy. And so when he does have all this power, he, he wants to maintain that, that, that power. And he comes on television explaining this. And there are people who will continue to support him and not see the hypocrisy. So you're saying this wealthy person was he genuinely crying or was it like a performative cry? He seemed to genuinely cry. He said something like, I care. <laughs> like when the, when, the, uh, when the anchor asked him, he goes, I see that you're getting emotional. Um, can you explain why? And then he, he began tearing up, literally tearing up. He goes, you know, I care. And, and it's just, it's infuriating to watch. But at the same time, it's, it's very funny. It's it's incredible how people who are people view money that they've extracted from other people's labor as something that they own that belongs to them. You know, it's a similar mentality, I think, to women's bodies. Like everybody has a right to women's bodies, to pregnant pregnant women's bodies, to touching pregnant women, to touching black women's hair, right? And so there's this kind of repeating narrative that certain people's bodies belong to everybody and don't belong to themselves. So what do you think about the idea that Vanetta is working with female tech founders? Um, she said that there wasn't an issue with the pipeline of girls into tech. Yes, it's true. There are a lot of organizations working with younger girls to create that pipeline, like Girls Who Code, Black Girls Who Code, etc. But I, I feel like we're not doing enough still as a society and systemically in our schools and educational systems to encourage girls to learn STEM, to participate in it, and to not be intimidated by the fact that most STEM majors and courses are still predominantly denominated by men. I, one of the things that stood out in this conversation was when you spoke about this difference in confidence in the ability when even from a very young age in high school, boys in general come into a, a class like that deals, for example, like coding, more confident than a woman would because they seem, we in society seem to, I guess, target technology or at least this was true in the past, more towards uh, boys than, than girls. So, for example, uh, back in the day, if you were to take a look at something like video games, video games were more of a boy thing. So, in general, I'm not saying that, that, that uh, video games are all about technology, but the, it, it, you are exposed to a lot of people, a lot of people who are, are involved in industry, in the industry, in the tech industry right now, may have been exposed since they were little when it comes to video gaming. I know that people who, young people that I see now in my work that are involved in the IT started because they 
had a computer at home and they were playing games and they just started, they wanted to modify their games. So in order to modify their games, they had to explore and figure out, oh, well, how can I add this that's, that the developer doesn't necessarily uh, want them to do XYZ in the game, but they could uh, somehow use technology and to, to, to change the code of the game and make it more appealing to them. So this is a, a way that they introduce themselves into technology and allows them to be more confident in, in going into these fields. And I don't believe women, at least in the past that I know, in general, women aren't encouraged to do these things. Different things are marketed to them. I mean, in the 90s, I feel like if you went to a Toys R Us, um, you would go to a, a girl section and you'd have a lot of dolls, uh, cooking supplies, basically toys that would train a child, a young woman for motherhood. Yeah. And so basically what you're referring to is the digital gender gap, right? Where yet there's another gender gap, but this time within uh, technology, both in terms of having access to technology and building that literacy, digital literacy, but also maybe being encouraged culturally to even have an interest. And so I think this is um, one of the reasons why I do this podcast, right? And why we have these discussions. Mm -hmm. It's really about planting the seed to get people to think differently about how our culture and our society has framed issues of gender and identity and equality. And so it takes having these conversations in so many different settings so that when you as an uncle, for example, and you're interacting with your niece, you're getting gifts for her, I'm guessing, that are not gendered, female, and that you're encouraging her to learn about science and play video games one day, you know, when she's older. Absolutely. It's something that I think about when I, 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 I love puzzles. And when I was a child, I wish that I could have had more puzzles. And even as a child, I, I, I did ask for toys like Legos and things like that, which involved creativity and some science in some cases. So I do hope that my niece will, will have an interest as long as I expose her to these things. And I'm going to, of course, encourage her mother to make sure she does the same. Let's turn to the last couple of episodes, which is also a two-parter. Our conversation with Susan Basterfield and Gina Stevens-Remby in episodes 75 and 76. Uh, both of them are part of the Inspiral Network, and I came to them because I found Lumio, which is one of the ventures in their network, because Lumio is an open-source collaborative decision-making tool and platform. And as part of some of the work that I'm doing around governance, I found them and I thought it was amazing that this tool exists and I wish that more people could um, actually adopt the tool. And, um, and then I, of course, explored and found out about Inspiral. So what are your thoughts about the fact that this network exists and some of the initiatives that we talked about within their network and that it exists so far away in New Zealand. I found it fascinating because at first I didn't altogether understand, at the beginning when I first started listening, the first episode, I didn't understand exactly what it is they did, right? In Spiral I'm talking about, right? Because that's, that's, the, that's the initial that's the initial organization and they 
I, I, I was confused in what it is that they do. They, she mentioned that the, phys, uh, that the mission statement is basically it's open for anybody who is willing to do something uh, using the values that they have to, to just combine your, your uh, resources together to help others out. So any surplus goes back into the company to make sure that it, others within that company um, are better able to, to do their job. And then, uh, again, you mentioned the other initiatives came from this. Uh, from Inspiral. So um, while at first it was it was hard to grasp, once I once I understood, it seems it seems that we over here in the United States are I, I guess not used to this um, this type of model uh, because as we spoke before, we, we in general most companies are profit oriented and not so much with the uh, feminist values, even though, again, this is another company where feminist values are implied despite them not necessarily saying that it's feminist. Well, I just want to go back to, in our conversation, you repeatedly reference profit and characterize it in opposition necessarily to feminism. And I just want to sort of point out that it's not that profit is inherently non-feminist. It's that how we how we acquire profit and then how it's distributed. So profit can be something that is acquired by a company in a fair way through collective decision making where the products and services that they work on are something that everybody has input in helping to define and a voice, which is what Inspiral does with the network. And they have a means for generating ideas, incubating ideas, and voting on those ideas to decide which ones to then create a potential venture out of. And then these ventures then have business models where some of the profit gets, as you said, returned to the larger network of Inspiral and then and gets distributed by everyone. Everybody is a collective owner versus someone being an employee of an organization and not having any ownership. Right, right. So it, 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 if you, uh, as an employee, have some ownership in the company, you, you're invested in it. And so you want the company to succeed. It's not like you go over there for a job and you think, all right, well, whatever happens to the company, I'm just going to do what I'm told and I'm going to do the bare minimum in order to make sure that I don't get fired. And it's a very different way of thinking about one's employment. and. I feel that people in general would be happier and more content in their lives in general if they're part of this company. What are the ways that you can incorporate some of these practices into your own job, into your professional environments that your friends and family are a part of? Do you think that there's any way that we can do that without building our own network? Because the idea is they don't want to be the only one that's doing this work. They want to be a model for it and they want to help build capacity for other organizations all around the world to do it. But then it takes, it's up to us as individuals to then take the initiative to say, we want that too. So basically what they're doing is leading by example. I think in the same way, that's what we should be doing too, leading by example. Going back to CV, because she, she mentioned that one of the things that she does is give voice first in her class 
to a woman or a person of uh, who is a minority whose voice may not necessarily be heard. So it's important to do small changes and anywhere that you possibly can. And that's just one example. But to, to incorporate this in your everyday life. Sometimes when we're at work, we don't necessarily have as much power. If we could if we could be as creative as possible and just sit down and think of different ways to make sure that you are addressing everybody, people would hopefully be able to be incentivized to learn more and hopefully uh, make a change in their lives and, 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 and hopefully spread this knowledge that way. So do you feel like these series of episodes that we've been discussing, the episodes around the theme of feminism in business, that it's relevant to our overarching theme of this podcast of gender-based violence? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you have, you have a, a mechanism that it gives us a little hope. I mean, this is something that gives us the ability to control our lives and, and change the narrative to be able to address these issues that affect gender-based violence, right? It's a way that we can somehow use this knowledge to affect others around us and thus the world. So I want to read a quote from my conversation with CV, which actually came from her book. And it says, dominance is the defining feature of patriarchal systems and violence is the policing apparatus of patriarchy. And so this concept that she said that basically our traditional capitalist work environments are organized in a way that they're inherently violent, that the threat of you losing your job or you not complying, and if you're not being, as she she said, being controlled by the company uh, appropriately, if you step out of line, then there's always the threat of something that's going to hurt you, which is losing your livelihood, right? Right. It's a financial threat. It's also a psychological threat. And she said that a lot of people resisted characterizing work environments in that way. Um, And so this is the theme of recognizing that violence is everywhere in our culture and society, but how do we change that? Right. Yeah. Like you said, this really touches on most episodes. Like, for example, now that you mentioned that, it reminds me of uh, the police, right? Where we had survivors who dealt with that policing, that violence, which we now, hopefully through this podcast, uh, are able to identify and hopefully use the language that we learned here to address those issues. Are you referring to when survivors have shared stories about going to law enforcement for help and they're not believed and the police kind of reinforce victim blaming myths and behaviors? Yes, that and also when the police themselves uh, abuse their power in order to control their spouses in, in, in some cases. Oh, you mean the high rates of domestic the violence rate, within law yeah. enforcement? Right. So that's, yes, that's another, that's another way that we, that, that we are affected. So yes, this, these series, the series definitely touches almost on everything that we talk about. When we engage in a conversation about business and feminism. Before we conclude, I want to just pose this question to you. What are some very tangible ways that you can imagine piloting some of these ideas and incorporating some of these ideas into the work that you're doing tomorrow? 
You're asking me for concrete things that I can do to, in order to incorporate these values and what we learned. I believe that next time I have a, a meeting, a group meeting, that when we're making a decision, that instead of me proposing an idea, I would ask the question, have everyone on the team contribute to the possible solution and for me to listen and for all of us to listen and come up with an idea together, making sure that everybody's voice is heard. That sounds great. I look forward to hearing how that goes. Okay, great. Until next time. Thank you, Michael. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Engendered. The show is sponsored by Can Do It Q&A, a peer-based knowledge platform that connects social service providers in advice, community, and learning. You can join Can Do It Q&A for free at qna.kanduit.com. I'd love to get your feedback and hear any questions or suggestions you may have for the show. Please email us at engenderedpodcast at gmail.com with your questions.